Hello, and welcome to episode three of Unstandardized English. I am your host, JPB Gerald, as ever. Uh, this one is one I've been looking forward to. Um, this is an episode about accents. It's about the word accent, and it's about what accents are and are not. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how accents are used, like all the other words we discuss, to discriminate, whether intentionally or otherwise. We're going to talk about how accents intersect with race and racism. And we're going to talk about how everybody, including you, including me, has an accent, whether or not they realize it and want to verbalize it. So I hope you enjoy the topic, because this is something I've really wanted to talk about since I came up with this idea for the podcast. But I have my guest with me. This is the newly minted Dr. BJ Ramjatan. Hello, BJ. Hey, Justin. Thanks so much for inviting me today. Oh, thanks for coming on. I've definitely wanted to have this happen for a little bit, although I say that as if my podcast is five years old, but still. <laughs> All right. So briefly, before we get into the questions about accents, can you just describe a little bit of the research you've done and some of the things you've written about? Um, yeah, sure. So I guess my uh, research interests really pertain to this um, intersection of language, race, and work, especially in educational context. So my past work kind of looked at sort of the professional experiences of uh, racialized English language teachers here in Toronto and like um, sort of like the microaggressions that they experience and the identity work that they do in response to these microaggressions. Um, in terms of my doctoral research, I kind of shifted my focus a little bit and looked at um, international teaching assistants, or ITAs for short. And so I was really looking at how they play, like, work around their accents and how this work is actually reflective of larger ideologies uh, pertaining to language and race. All right. Well, that's certainly very interesting, and it leads us into what we're going to talk about today, about accents. Um just establishing something that I think we both know, but I don't think everybody else does. Everybody has an accent, regardless of what they think about that fact. Uh, the exactly. question, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I don't know. I disagree. Yeah. Uh, the question to me, start off, is what is a good way, an accurate way, without you know espousing ideologies to describe one's accent? Should we be as specific as a region and then a nation, or is it better to speak more broadly, or what is the best way you think to describe an accent so that it doesn't, you know, create marginalization or increase it? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult question because most of the time when we describe our accents, we're trying to conform to these, like, national ideologies, right? So this idea of one language, one people, one nation, and so the problem with that type of framing of an accent is that um, it doesn't really accurately describe our accents because accents are really not, they're not stable auditory traits, right? They're really dynamic and they could be an assemblage of various linguistic features, right? Influenced by our social environment. So it's, um, in terms of like how to accurately describe an accent, it's, um, it just depends on how specific you want to be with the person you're describing it to. So I don't think there's one particular way that we need to describe our accents. Well, that's useful. I think that uh, a lot of people might find that surprising, unless they're already doing this sort of work, in which case they're like, well, obviously. Um, 
And, uh, you know, sometimes at least speaking of myself, not to make this entire thing about me, but just so that people can use this as a way to frame their own experience. I grew up in New York. I still live in New York, aside from the few years that I was in college and when I spent two years overseas. And I don't have, you know, what one might call a stereotypical strong New York accent. However, that goes to what you said before about if you are describing people in that limited way, then it means that people are framed as inside or outside of the group for better or worse, and usually for worse. Um, so, So I think that it really shows how if you say you're from a city or a state or a country and you don't conform to what people are expecting of that, then using that sort of framing really becomes a problem. Exactly. Um, so what are some, I mean, it depends on the location you're in, although it usually goes along white supremacist lines, but clearly some accents, yeah. you know, certain European countries, of course, Western European carry higher social value, in, at least in the U.S. and Canada. So does this depend on the location, though? Are there places where, for example, uh, a certain French-accented speech might carry higher value than it does in other places, or places where it might carry lower value or things like that? Yeah. Well, I, I guess I can speak to my own um, PhD work. Um, so if we look at accents in relation to whiteness, for example, and we, we say, like, these stereotypically white accents from Europe are generally perceived to be um, intelligible and attractive, etc., Sometimes in select counter spaces, like, they can actually lose this superiority. So um, with my work with um, ITAs, for example, um, sometimes it's, it's really the, uh, the, the similarity between the two speakers that can make um, a racialized accent more understandable than a, than a so-called uh, white accent. So um, I remember having some Chinese participants, and they were telling me that um, in contrast to maybe like a British accent or a so-called Canadian accent, a Chinese accent can be more understandable for other Chinese speakers of English because they're both familiar with each other's like phonology and, and syntax and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so that's one example of where these sort of, these privileged accents don't necessarily have the same power, right? But it really depends on, on context once again, right? It's not something that's widespread. I would say. Yeah, I think when I think about, um, for example, I used to have to assess people based on, you know, the, do you know the best plus exam? You heard of that one? Um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of tests. Um, but the, the best plus has three components to it, right? It's an oral exam. It's also a written part, but I'm speaking of the oral part. And there's three parts to it. And I'm supposed, or whoever is supposed to assess um their, you know, accuracy, which is a whole other thing, but just for the purposes of the discussion, I'll say that I had to assess their accuracy when they were speaking. I had to assess their complexity, you know, how complex their sentences were, which was all, then they would put yes or no questions into it, which means it didn't make any sense, but, you know. Uh, and then I had to assess how intelligible they were. They didn't refer to it as intelligibility, but that's what they meant. Um, now, I was a, you know, a language teacher for however many years. I can pretty much understand what most people are saying or what they're trying to say. 
So what I had to do was turn off that part of my brain and say, would a standard person, you know, the what I didn't know as such at the time, but the white listener, understand this person? And I felt bad scoring them based on that. But on the other hand, if I knew more about it at the time, I might have been able to contextualize it for them to say, look, I'm assessing you based on whether or not a person who is either familiar or is willing to pay attention to different voices uh, would be able to understand without effort. And that is the sort of test that a lot of, as I was working at a nonprofit, a lot of these places depend on for their funding. People have to improve on that. And the examiner is usually not a language professional like I was, so therefore they can use their own level of understanding for the person's intelligibility. And there's a lot, at least in the United States, a lot of the industry is based on oral exams like that where intelligibility is going to be based on, you know, a lot of markers of accent which one cannot necessarily change. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because, like, I... As I was just saying with my, my research, like sometimes whiteness can be sort of disrupted in these sort of micro spaces, but with like testing and all of these institutional and structural things, right? Um, so-called white speakers of English are still the benchmark, right? Um, from which, uh, we all, we judge each other's speech. So, um, it's still like, um, a structural institutional thing. Um, that's sort of, yeah, hard to disrupt sometimes. Yeah, I think that um, I tried to be as fair as I could with this sort of thing because I knew both that it, our funding depended on it, so what, I'm going to just have a revolution inside my head and then we don't have any funding, uh, or I tried to make it so that students who really were say, getting across the meaning that they wanted to were scored more highly, but then I wasn't really doing what the test you know, wanted me to do, and well, that's probably not good. Um, <laughs> so I tried to balance it myself, but on the other hand, like, you test 85 students, you know, you can only be fighting the battles, but so much, you have so, so much time. And then there's a the whole part of the industry, of course, which works on what they refer to as as accent reduction. So I... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how you feel about that phrase, but uh, it seems to me that accents really should be seen as additive rather than reductive, but uh, or subtractive. I don't know. Yeah, well, I'm, I guess I can go on for hours about accent reduction, but yeah, I guess, like, um, well, there's so many problems with it. Like, as you're saying, like, um, kind of the it's a misnomer to begin with, right? Because if you really want to reduce your accent, you should just stop speaking entirely if you want to eliminate your accent because the act, our accents are our voices, right? So there's no... It's, kind of, it's already a misnomer in that, in that way. Um, yeah, but I think, yeah, that's the problem with accent reduction. To, uh, another problem with accent reduction is that, right, it gets conflated with, like, language proficiency and these higher-order traits like intelligibility, comprehensibility. So, um, yeah, there's there's lots of problems with it that I can, yeah. Yeah. Um, Grab on it. Yeah, the... the uh, I remember when I was I learning a foreign language, or uh, learning French when I was in school, and one of the things that they 
they didn't judge us proficiency-wise on this, but it was certainly a point in our favor if we had a quote-unquote good accent. And then they weren't really speaking about the way we spoke English, but in French, if we sounded more like a French national, then we, you know, it was, it was better for us. And I took pride in this because I was able to pronounce the vowels the way that I was told to, or at least closer to the way that my teacher, who was from France, was pronouncing them. And then we had people who spoke... French as if they were reading English with different letters in it. And, you know, in my head, I was like, these people, they cannot speak the language as well as I can because 11-year-olds are kind of dumb like that. But um, <laughs> the, this was like a big thing, and this went on all the way up through college, when, which was the last time I took a French class. But then I look back and I think about it, and I'm like, but the people who spoke with what I would call a, at the time, I called a poor accent, but I should say probably a more standard American accent or something, they were getting across their meaning. So, although, because they were white, it was not as big of a deal for them to try to conform to the way the language was being spoken, if I want to think about the way that racialized people speak and not judge them based on their accents, then I should probably extend the same courtesy to everybody when they're trying to learn a language. That's just me getting deep into my head from like 15 years ago or something like that. <laughs> Which is probably a lot of what this podcast ends up being. Um, so do you think that uh, there's some unconscious habits or subconscious habits people can work to get away from when people, because all this stuff, we, you know, we, we study language and so forth, but people walking down the street aren't going to be doing much about this, and they probably won't be listening to this, so maybe this is pointless. But if someone's listening to this and they're not studying language or teaching language, what are some habits that they might be able to change when either describing accents or thinking about accents and the way people speak so that they might be able to be more equitable? Yeah, that's a... That's a good question and, and complicated, too. Um, and deliberately yeah, so. I think, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, well, the whole, the whole, when we use the term accent, like, a lot of the times we're using it as a pejorative term, right? So, like, um, if, if I'm a privileged speaker of whatever language, I might say, oh, I don't have an accent. Well, this person, uh, person X has this type of accent. So, I think we have to really... Um, well, sort of like reinforce the fact that everybody has an accent, right? So, um, it's, yeah, I'm trying to, I was watching actually this morning, I was just watching some talk show or something, and the person, they were talking about how someone misunderstood someone else, and one of the hosts said, oh, it's probably because of their accent, and I found it so like, well, <laughs> as a language scholar, I felt like so offended, <laughs> because I felt, well, it's not really the accent. Then, right? Maybe not your. It's not probably your um, unfamiliarity with it, right? Um, so I think it's really, yeah, not really answering your question, but I guess it's really to be more reflective about what you're what you're saying about an accent, right? I think you have to think about less about what the person is saying and how you're actually listening to the person. Is probably um, have, you have to really focus on improving your listening skills. I would say. Um, I think about because. Now, are there are some are there some languages that are objectively farther apart in terms of like familiarity if you haven't heard them that might take a person longer like uh, you know if you uh, speak French 
and you hear someone speaking Spanish because they're both Romance languages, would those, I know it's not, I know the language and the accent aren't the same thing, but what I'm saying is if someone is speaking Spanish from Spain, I should be clear, and you live in France, would it be easier for you to understand them than it would be to someone who's, you know, speaking Chinese or something like that? Or, I mean, without studying the language? Um, yeah, and so you mean if, if they're speaking English with a Spanish accent, right. for example? Right, I said, well, that, okay. I said that very poorly, but you understood what I meant. Uh, <laughs> but yes, that's what I meant. No, no, you're perfectly good, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think it goes once again back to um, familiarity, right? So if you spend a lot of time with Spanish, speaker, Spanish speakers of English, right, and if you're exposed to them on a constant basis, right, I think that's going to make, make um, understanding their accent, right, easier than, say, someone you haven't spent a lot of time with, right, a specific group that you haven't spent a lot of time with. Um, yeah, so I, I guess for, for me, like, I, well, as a critical scholar of language, I never, I never see our perceptions as objective, right? They're always influenced by these larger um, ideological and sociocultural forces. So I don't think there's, there's such a thing as an objectively comprehensible or an objectively incomprehensible accent. I think it really has to do more with our standpoint and our personal experiences, I would say. Yeah, so what I think of um, English... I remember one interesting experience I had when I lived in Korea, and I got to hear different types of English from that I had ever heard before. I don't really mean Korean uh, who are speaking English. I heard that too, but I'm not referring to that. I mean, um, there were lots of people from different primarily English-speaking countries doing the same thing that I was teaching the language. Whether we all should have been there teaching the language is a different question, but that was kind of my first episode. Uh, but the people who I had the most trouble myself personally understanding were not the Australians or the people from New Zealand, but I had a lot of trouble understanding this, the few Scottish people because there were so few of them, and I thought it meant that the language or the way that they spoke was harder to understand, but it took not that much time for me to understand what you're just saying now is true, is that it's because I just had never really met very many people from Scotland and listened to them speak. Um, and I think if people took a step back and realized that that was the case when it came to people speaking English who were from other places, whether their first language or their home language was English or not, they might come to the same conclusion. But, you know, like I said, we sit around studying language, so we are inclined to think about these things. Um... And another question I had is that, you know, does a person have a uh, static accent? You know, like um, if I'm speaking a certain way at this age, is it necessarily the case that in the same language, using the same language, I will have the same accent five years later? Yeah, so I think it, it goes once uh, once again. It goes back to like your your personal experience. So like, if you travel a lot or you lived in a different country for a while, right? It's, it's natural for your accent to change, right? And so accents are malleable, right? They're not these things frozen in time. Um, yes, yeah, like um, even like with um, uh, maybe uh, so-called non-native speakers of English, if they move to a country like Canada. Right, uh, from a young age, and they grew up here. Right, they 
they might eventually even sound like quote unquote native because they spend so much time, right, in the country. So I think it has to do uh, with your environment and that can really, that can change your accent more or less, right? It depends on the person uh, once again, but. I know yeah. that. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Go ahead, yeah. Um, I know plenty of people who, you know, they were born in the UK and they moved to the United States and they sound very differently than they did when they were children because of the experiences they had. But on the other hand, I know people who grew up, who not grew up, but who were born in the UK and lived there for a few years and they speak much more similarly to um, to the way they did when they were children. So then the question I have following that is, is there, are there, you know, are there studies or is there um, evidence or data that uh, you get more of an influence on your accent from your external surroundings, like outside of your home, or is it often cl more closely tied to your home surroundings? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'm trying to think of like my TESOL training and all of those SLA courses we probably took um, earlier on in our careers. Um, I think like, so I guess it's not only about environment, but also like what you choose to do in that environment. So. Um, yeah, I, I'm not, I can't remember any specific study right now, but there's, there's a lot of work on like motivation, right? When we learn languages and stuff and like how, if, if I really want to sound like a so-called native speaker of another language, right? I might put in the more, put in more effort to sort of, um, mimic what I hear from other people. Like I might do a lot of self-study and stuff like that. So I think it's, it's not only environment, it's what you choose to do in terms of motivation and your own your own personal um, intrinsic goals, right? Or like extrinsic, extrinsic goals as well. Um, those things will probably um, influence like um, like how, how successful, I'm using air quotes here, um, in developing like a new type of accent. Yeah. So it's not just what you hear but it's what you want to do so it's, again it's not just input but also output that affects the way that people speak um, it, and one of the things you mentioned earlier which was tied to racialization was that in certain communities what is not privileged in the broader society can become uh, actually sort of privilege within the smaller group. So I think of that sometimes because you'll notice, I remember when I was a kid, and this is within speaking English, that it was a stereotype among my classmates that people with uh, a more pronounced, let's say, a Southern American accent were less intelligent than people who spoke like them. Now, obviously, that's a terrible thing to say, but what was interesting is that there were there are places where um, although what we incorrectly refer to as a standard American accent is prized on let's say the news there are places in the country where if you sound like that then you are seen negatively so if you're on the news in Dallas or something then you actually want a little bit of a more stereotypical regional accent, but not too much of one, and then you have the same stereotypes showing up, which is sort of interesting that 
it doesn't really change the whole accent-based discrimination. It just tilts it a little bit in one direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because, like, when we talk about accent, like, a lot of the times we're talking about intelligibility or, like, trying to be as uh, comprehensible as possible for people. But also it's really about, like, these other functions, like trying to be more socially attractive for people or trying to be more credible, right? So for with the, uh, with the example of news for, uh, that you brought up, right, maybe, like, uh, people in Texas want sort of, like, a Texan accent because that's sort of going to... Um, that sort of that might be perceived as a more trustworthy voice than, than a uh, so-called um, Midwestern accent, right? So, um, yeah. So we see these different like narratives about accent um, in terms of like what purposes it serves. So if it's about intelligibility, maybe okay, I can sound Midwestern. If it's about being familiar and relatable, I can sound maybe have a Southern accent. Um, so um, if, it, if it's like uh, TV or movies, right, maybe if we're talking about particular racialized foreign accents, um, they can be, um, it's okay to sound, they have like an Indian accent or a, um, uh, a Chinese accent, for example, right? And so it's really about the context and like what's the purpose of the accent in particular situations. I think that there's a lot of surveys that come out, and you know, it's just a survey on the internet, so we'll see what people actually whether it's true or not, but it comes out like every year and they rank regional accents by their, you know, their sexiness around the United States yeah. or, or they rank it across the, the world, although I suppose they're talking about people speaking English, so that's a whole other thing. Um, and people, you know, it gets to clicks, right? So it says that the Boston accent is the sexiest and then people say, oh, this is ridiculous. I can't stand that accent, right? Or it says that this region is the sexiest. Oh, I can't, I just can't believe that. First of all, like the whole point of something being sexy is that it's it's subjective anyway, regardless of it being accents. But putting that aside, because this is not a uh, discussion about sexiness, uh, (laughs) you know, I think that that sort of thing causes a lot of the you know, ongoing misinformation about what accents are and aren't because regardless of what the metric is being used to judge the other qualities, the fact that they are being ranked in value uh, is itself a problem, whether it's sexiness or, as you say, being trustworthy or, you know, being relatable or whatever it is. And all we're doing is just stratifying people based on the way that they speak. And, you know, I don't know we're ever going to get to the point where we stop doing that. But I guess the question, because I'm just monologuing over here, is like, what can we do besides what we've already sort of discussed here to work against things like that? Aside from not sharing those articles, which I still end up reading anyway, because I'm interested. But (laughs) but like, what can we do when something like that comes up? When people then start having a conversation about it outside of the linguistic community, just people. Do we just refuse to participate in the conversation or do we show up and be all academic about it and have people ignore us because that's what people do? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, you can't really lecture people. <laughs> but I guess I think like these moments can be sort of teachable moments in, in a way. Like, um, So like what I emphasize in my research is that when we're talking about accents, it's, we're really talking about the bodies associated with an accent, right? So these sexiest accent lists, right? It's not really about the accent per se. It's really about the image of the person that we believe is speaking the accent. So 
if for like if somebody shared that article with me, I would say, well, what actually is it really the accent that you find attractive, or is it really the image that comes to mind when you hear this accent, right? So I think you can use sort of how you question people about their their ideologies and their assumptions about accent. That those can be little small microwaves that we can kind of combat these types of uh, negative ideologies. But um, yeah, I'm. Yeah, just as stuck as you as to figure uh, in figuring out what to actually do. That's <laughs> uh, something I'm trying to sort of yeah uh, articulate and yeah come up with. My uh, I've had interesting moments with accents where I have spoken to people and I've noticed that my expectation of what they would sound like is different from what actually happened. I don't just mean in terms of like pitch, which is a whole other thing, but not really related to this, but, uh, or related, but you know what I'm saying. But things like, I remember when I was in South Korea and I, the people there spoke English, not, not all of them, uh, but when they did, they tended to speak English with, you know, accented by Korean because they were Korean. But then there are people who had lived overseas and they sounded, you know, closer to whichever country that they had lived in. And then there were people who had gone to different places to learn English. And so you had people like this Korean woman I met who had studied English in the UK. And so unlike almost every other person who spoke English with a Korean accent or even an American accent, she spoke English with a British accent. And I remember just being like, every time she spoke, I was like, what? just like double take like what because it was going against my preconceived notions not only of someone who was korean speaking english but someone who was korean speaking english with a you know an accent from a different location but then it wasn't even the different location i was expecting so i had to get into my thoughts about i mean i wasn't thinking that it was like worse i actually thought it was fascinating but then you realize that okay what does that mean justin you know what does that mean it means that you have an image of what a person from a place is supposed to sound and look like so when i think of those accent surveys I think, what do I think when I think of a person from a certain region, right? When I think of a Boston accent, I think of, like, you know, like Matt Damon with the baseball cap on or something. Like, like, or, or, you know, like a, a college kid or something like that. There are obviously people who are not that with that accent, but that's certainly what I think of. And then I think of what is my value of that person, and then I construct my level of, you know, attraction to them or whatever based on that. And I think that that's what's going on with people, but they're not articulating those things to themselves. They're just clicking on a thing and voting. But that's the thought process. And I think based on what you're saying, we can help people walk backwards through that thought process if they are willing to go on the trip with us. And it might actually get somewhere. I don't know that it will get them to just not have an opinion on it, but we might actually get somewhere in the conversation that's better than just, you know, this place sounds good, this place sounds bad. Because as we've said with the bodies, there are plenty of black people in Boston, but when you think of a stereotypical Boston accent, I don't think you're thinking of a black person. I don't mean you. I mean, I think people generally are not putting that image in their head. And, um, or a person of another race who is not white. Generally speaking, we're thinking New England. I think a lot of people think you know, the stereotypical Kennedy thing, uh, despite the fact that there are plenty of people of color in New England. And when you think of a Southern accent, there's still many different regions within the South. 
uh, and a certain type of accent there is more associated with white people. And that is the one that's more valued socially than a southern accent that's more associated with the black people. And when you listen to people on the radio saying that they can't understand what southern rappers are saying, but they're perfectly okay with what southern country singers are saying, you know, there's, there's something being said there that I don't think they realize they're saying, or they realize it and they don't think that we realize that we, I'm just getting lost in my in my clauses, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, basically people might not be aware of, like, what they're saying about accent, or they could be <laughs> just completely using accent to mask their racist sentiments um, at the same time. Right. But it's interesting, yeah, it's interesting because, like, with accent, too, and, and racialized identities, um, sometimes, like, um, like you were saying, with the, with the, Korean, the Korean people who spoke with, like, a, a British accent, for example, and that surprised you, um, sometimes, like, the accent is sort of the semiotic resource where we can sort of de-racialize ourselves or make ourselves look um, less representative or stereotypically representative of our ethno-racial background. So, um, like, from, from in my, uh, for example, in my experience, so my parents are originally from Trinidad, uh, which is a small Caribbean island um, in the southern Caribbean, and so... Um, yeah, they have their Trini accent, but since I was born and raised in Canada, I have a so-called Canadian accent, but when I speak, my parents always make fun of me and say I sound white, like I'm not really, um, I'm not really a brown guy, I'm really <laughs> just speaking um, in a sort of um, less brown way. So it's, um, I think that's another facet of accent and race that's, um, that we need to sort of explore as well, because... Uh, we can use it as a way to sort of de-racialize ourselves uh, for particular audiences. There's almost a different food for every race when they're accused of sounding white, right? There's a coconut, yeah. there's a banana, and, you know, they, yeah. they would call me an Oreo, right? So, like, uh, I don't know why it's food, but <laughs> there's always something... There's probably something to be said there, but there's always something that they use to say, hey, you don't sound like I expect you to. For me, it's pretty much the same thing, although not my parents. My parents, my mom is from Philadelphia and my dad is from North Carolina. He moved to D.C. when he was 16, but, you know, the southern accent is still there. I was not raised around people from these places that they don't particularly sound like it, although, like I said, my dad does sometimes, and I was raised in schools where absolutely nobody sounded like that. So the influences I had around me were not that. So I sound like the people I spoke to. My family never really made fun of me. My family was always kind about my voice, although I don't particularly like how high-pitched it is, but uh, the, you know, when I spoke with different people at school, uh, people would say that I sounded white also. And it's a different feeling when white people tell you you sound white than it is when people of color tell you you sound white. But it's still sort of a value, trust, judgment thing. And it's really difficult to respond unless you know it's coming with absolute love and tenderness because if it's coming from a place of suspicion or I don't know why you sound that way you know it's uh, 
it's it's not a good, good feeling. But I don't know. You can respond to your own experience there. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Like I, I only get that sounding white comment from my parents. But like, if I go out to, to the workplace or school, like uh, most of the time, people can't understand me. Like if I order something, <laughs> like if I go to Starbucks, for example, and I say my name. Like I'll just get these weird spellings of my name, even though it's sometimes letters. I literally spell out my name, name, and I get these weird like, like I'll get a B J instead of. <laughs> but if they could just write the letters V and J anyway. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I do that. I just say the V and a J just to make it easier for people, and still sometimes, actually, I did that one time, and then I got some weird combination of. Like they heard like a Vienna J or something like that, oh. uh, so it's just a weird yeah it's, yeah. So basically, the, I'm I only stand white at home. Like outside, I'm sort of susceptible to these racialistic ideologies of me being the sort of incomprehensible speaker, which is kind of true in a sense because I do get tongue-tied a lot. But I don't think that's because of my race. That's just because of how yeah my own personal idiolect, I guess. But. All right. Yeah. I'm going to get to idiolect in a second because I sort of want to end on that because I don't think a lot of people know about outside of our community. But yeah, like when I'm, people tend to understand what I'm saying, or at least they don't profess not to understand it. I don't know what they're actually thinking, um, but I um, I know that when I call places or if people don't know me and they've heard my name and they don't know anything about me besides my name or whatever, they pretty much all think I'm white. Now, part of that is my name, which is, my last name is Gerald, which is originally British in origin, although, you know, we haven't been a British family since a couple of hundred years, but still. But on the other hand, it's also because I speak the way that I do. And then I, I often feel conflicted about that because I say to myself, I'm really proud of being black, although it took me a while for that to be the case. I used to just not think about it. Um, and I used to code switch a lot more to try to sound more like my surroundings when I was around other black people. And I, I could do it just fine. But I gave it up after a while because it was so exhausting. I was trying to sound differently than I actually spoke. And honestly, the people who care about me, when I just start talking and they care, they don't really care how I sound, so it works out okay. Um, when I was trying really hard to sound in a certain way, people uh, notice that you're trying really hard, <laughs> uh, regardless of what it is that you're trying to do. Um, so I think that that also becomes a thing, especially for people when they're in the workplace and they're in a workplace where they're racialized and nobody else is. Um, they try to sand off the quote-unquote rough edges of the way that they talk uh, so that they are viewed more positively. And, it's, you know, there's so many studies showing that being racialized in the workplace or in school can have a really intense psychological impact on people. But that's a whole other thing. So speaking of uh, Idiolex, though, uh, well, why don't you describe Idiolex for the people who are listening, which I could do, but you would be able to do better than I can. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> so I'm trying. Yeah, so basically, like uh, we talked about, we talk about dialects and types of varieties of a language. But Idiolect is really our personal style of a language, right? So 
it goes back to this idea of, of accents as well. Like, we although we might have similar accents, people groups of people might have similar accents. We all have our own unique way of speaking. So, um, in terms of accents, for example, I might sound quote unquote Canadian, but maybe in certain words, I might sort of use like a Trini accent, for example. Um, so it's really this idea of idiom like is really how our linguistic repertoire is really a sort of a, a mishmash of like uh, different phonological, um, grammatical, etc. features. So um, yeah, feel free to add any <laughs> any other uh, points that I well, I didn't think, cover there. I think that um, we would all do better to think more about like accent isn't a word we need to throw in the garbage, but we need to think more about how. Um, we use that word. Maybe it's a more technical term we can use for a region without using it so much on a people, I don't know, um, or a person. And when we talk about people, we should think, really, how does that person choose to speak? Or even if, because as, even if they're not thinking about it consciously, it's still a choice about the, you know, the words that you're using or that you have um, at your disposal. And I think that we should celebrate the way that people choose to speak and the way that they choose to pronounce certain words. Obviously, there is a, a limit if people truly can't be understood um, when they're using a word that they are intending to mean one thing and it is not commonly understood to mean that, then they're going to have an issue and that could that is exacerbated by racism and so forth, but if you're simply using a word that means something different to most people, then you probably, you can make that choice, but you should be aware that that is a choice that you're making. Um, as opposed to just stumbling around without knowing that that's what you're doing. However, I used to be really into pronunciation as a, you know, thing to teach in class. And although I'm still interested in it as far as emphasis, because I think that's an interesting part of English, I think that we might want to pump the brakes on telling people why the way they pronounce things is bad or less valuable or less correct or something like that. What do you think about the teaching of pronunciation? Yeah, so I think like it's, um, I'm thinking about like my, my TESOL training training from back in the day and like I remember how how we were sort of told like pronunciation and it's sort of this forgotten skill like teachers are hesitant to talk about it because they don't feel they have the adequate training to do it uh, they don't feel like they know how to sort of diagnose um, specific pronunciation issues of students but I think it is it is an important uh, thing to teach right and, and to be trained on because um, yeah, like we were talking about accent reduction, right? The dangers of accent reduction, and the pro one of the uh, one of the dangers of it is to is saying that is promoting this idea that okay, well, you have to lose the entirety of your accent in order to be understood. But with pronunciation teaching, it's really focusing on these genuine, discrete features of pronunciation that need to be addressed in order to make yourself truly um, intelligible. And part of that is sort of understanding that it's not always like the specific quirk of your of your accent that's causing the problem. It's really about how that quirk gets um, 
becomes influenced by context, right? So if I, for example, if I can't say the TH sound, like in three, the number three, right? If I say, um, if I'm giving you my phone number and I say it's um, 555-333, right? You, from the context of me giving the phone number, you should be able to understand, okay, well, BJ is actually meaning the number three, even though I'm hearing tree as in like a plant outside. So I think with pronunciation teaching, we have to sort of get over this idea that intelligibility or comprehensibility, et cetera, is located in one person, but it's something that we actually have to create, right, through through our interlocutors and through the context that we're, that we're speaking in. Yeah, I think, you know, sort of add on what you're saying, I think that intelligibility is something that is often, it's, un, it's unspoken, well, unspoken is the wrong word, uh, unconscious, but it's sort of negotiated between two or how many people are speaking, you know, in, in a conversation, in a dialogue, because if you say something like the number three, but you pronounce it three, I think people should be able to figure out what you're saying. But there are times when it might be possible for a word, if pronounced one way, to truly mean something else. And then is when you're really going to have to, um, you know, drill down. However, I think the problem isn't that people sometimes say things that others don't understand, because that just happens. It's when they take that clash or that distance and use it to devalue the other party, particularly when the other party is of a racialized group. And that's where the problems go. Because just having a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding is just completely fine. It's what happens after that point. And I think if we change the way that we see accents, think more about idiolects and think more about negotiating meaning, uh, we might come closer to, you know, avoiding this sort of racialized devaluation of others and marginalization based on what sort of accents we consider good and what certain accents we consider bad. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally agree, because sometimes, yeah, the accent becomes the scapegoat <laughs> and many uh, misunderstandings, right, when it's really about these other things, right, the person's on perceptions of the speaker, right? So, yeah, there's, yeah, we have to stop using accent to sort of as the sole cause of everything, but, yeah. I will end with this. Yeah, so I'll end with this brief, I don't know if it's a story, but it's a, you know, vignette, whatever's shorter than story. Um, I had a co-worker who, uh, it took me a very long time to realize was having issues she was doing exactly what we've talked about and what you've written about where uh she was having trouble understanding someone who was perfectly intelligible by most aspects but because he was in a racialized body it was more difficult for her to get past that and understand what he was saying she had met him this person we're speaking about before i had i'd never met him and um, his last name, which I miss, um, which I spelled wrong at the first start, it could have either been, I assumed his last name meant the man was Japanese. So I'm expecting a Japanese man when I meet him because Japanese names are usually identifiable. But I misunderstood. The man 
and was Nigerian. Um, and anyway, the man had clearly, you know, whether you know, he'd been speaking English for decades. And when I met this man, w- there was absolutely no trouble in understanding him. And I had started to dig into the research that we've discussed here, and I realized that this was a problem that people often have when people speak very, very clearly and precisely, yet the racialized body that is around that accent means that somehow the meaning is obscured. And we need to think about how we view these bodies and take our views out on the accent when it's not the accent's fault or the person's fault. It's the uh, values we're placing on these different individuals. Yeah, definitely. All right, BJ. So thanks for talking to me. I, uh, I'm going to put this up soon, but uh, I wanted to say that it was really illuminating having this discussion with you. I think and hope that people listening will have a, I don't know, interesting time hearing what we have to say. Hopefully they'll learn something and maybe they'll think of the word accent and people's accents differently. Yes, hopefully. Thank you so much for our conversation. I really thought it was enjoyable and, yeah, thought-provoking. Well, if I can make things thought-provoking for you, then I think I've done my job. All right, and that was another episode, episode three. Uh, There were some audio disruptions. I think there always will be. Uh, Hopefully you heard us. I had to record that once and then play it out loud on the speakerphone on my phone so that it could record itself. It was complicated, and it took me a lot more time than I wanted to. But uh, we did some good stuff there. I think you might agree with that. And I'll be back in two weeks with another one. Thanks. Here's another random three-second sound clip from the app that records my podcast.